Hi, and welcome to another Cyber Podcast episode. I'm your host, Christoph Limpelaire, and in this episode, Shane Sims joins us to talk about the cyber threats facing organizations today so that we can get a look at the behind-the-scenes workings of the cybersecurity industry. Now, Shane is the CEO of Kivu, a full-service cybersecurity consulting firm where they offer services in three core divisions. They have advisory services, managed services, and response services. Before that, he spent a number of years at KPMG as a partner focusing on cybersecurity strategy services. He'd also spent eight years prior at PwC, where he was a partner and built as well as led the consulting firm's cybercrime and data breach response business. Even earlier than that, Shane spent 11 years at the FBI, where he was a supervisory special agent responsible for building and leading a cyber offense team in support of counterterrorism counterintelligence, and cybercrime matters. Now, as if all of this wasn't enough already, Shane has won numerous awards and has 15 cybersecurity-related publications that you can find on his LinkedIn profile. So I'm really excited to have him on the show. And Shane, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. Yeah, really glad to be here. Thank you. So in this episode, we have a lot to talk about, but we're going to focus on three main topics. The first one being the evolution of cybercrime, the second being career advice for our future cybersecurity leaders, and the third being your time at the FBI. And actually, let's start by talking about your time in the FBI, because I think a lot of audience members will be particularly interested in that section of, of your career. So I gave a quick intro, but could you further elaborate on the roles and responsibilities that you held during your tenure? Sure. Uh, after the FBI Academy, I was sent to a field office, which is the uh, the path that all FBI Academy, Academy graduates take. Um, at that time, cybercrime had not really raised its ugly head. I was assigned to a public corruption squad where I investigated um, public officials and uh, corrupt law enforcement officers and things like that. Um, shortly thereafter, cybercrime did start to emerge. And because I had been in that business prior to the FBI, uh, for a number of years, was obviously selected to to join one of the first cyber squads at the FBI. This was in the late 90s. Um, things were a lot different back then in terms of cybercrime and how it's evolved over the years. Happy to talk about that. But spent seven years in the field um, after 911, did a lot of counterterrorism work. I think most of the Bureau reoriented itself, at least if you were in the field. We had a lot of leads to cover. Um, but then came back to cybercrime and then ultimately was promoted to a position at Quantico. Um, and in that role, had an opportunity to build the FBI's first generation offensive unit. Um, and in that capacity, we, um, under various court orders and such, we would, uh, you know, gain access to target computers, um, to do various things that the court order allowed. Um, today, people would call that a nation state threat, but fortunately I worked for the good guys. Um, I will say, make this comment though about nation state threats in cyberspace is that when you know governments target 100% um, of the time, they gain access to their target, right? There's that, That's a pretty strong metric. And then equally strong is that you know, government cyber operations um, also accomplish their objectives once they gain access 100% of the time. 
Um, I ultimately uh, transferred over to a special operations unit um, at Quantico called the Critical Incident Response Group and spent my last two years in a leadership role in a uh, counterterrorism group. Kind of glossed over that, but happy to dig into anything. No, definitely. We're going to be unpacking a lot of that, especially because, as you pointed out, you've been there through many stages of cybercrime and cyber threats since essentially the start of, of when they first came around. And you've been able to see over the years how they've they've changed and transformed. Quite the scary stat, about 100% success rate. So we'll, we'll also talk a little bit about that later on. But I, I have to go back to this. I know you, you briefly touched on it, and I saw this in your, your background and profile, that you led a cyber offensive operation against all kinds of, of threat actors, which sounds really intense, especially when you're doing it for such an important government agency. Are you able to share a particularly challenging cyber operation that you were involved in and, and perhaps also how your team ended up handling it? They're all challenging. I mean, initially, you know, step one is just assessing the risk of the operation itself. Um, and really what, you know, the, the field special agents are assessing if they were to leverage that particular unit is whether or not the offensive cyber operation could put the overall investigation at risk. And it's usually centered around a discussion of detection. Like what if the bad guy detects the activity? Um, how would that potentially negatively impact the overall investigation? Um, I can share that when I was running the unit, 96% of the time we were not detected. Of the 4% of the time that we were detected, it was not attributable to the FBI or the U.S. government or anything, anything related. In fact, we could have made attribution look like we were anyone coming from anywhere on earth. I, I was curious to see how you'd respond to that simply because I can only imagine the types of operations that you had to deal with. One of the ones that you are able to, to publicly share on your profile is that you were a first responder during the 9-11 attacks, which must have been an incredibly difficult experience. I was still a young child when I remember seeing the footage come on my, on my TV screen, but you were one of the ones that actually had to respond to that attack and to that threat. And I can only imagine that being just a, an incredible experience, not in a, in a positive way, but I'm sure it ended up building a certain skill set in how you approach crisis response and then subsequent work, not only for government, but also for private industry. So can you speak a little bit more to how that event shaped the rest of your career and your approach to, to crisis response? Sure. So on 911, that was obviously a very scary day for anyone um, that knew what was going on. And it was very scary for me. I happened to be, um, it was really early in the morning, myself and a, a new agent were going out to interrogate a cybercrime suspect. And it was this uh, particular new agent's first time attempting to get a confession and a written statement. So we were going through all of that when you know, the, the thing started to unfold. And I happened to be two miles from the uh, International Airport in Cleveland, Ohio, and got a call on the Bureau radio that said, look, you're, uh, you're real close. We need you to get over there. There's a suspected fifth hijacked airliner that's being grounded at Cleveland Hopkins International Airport. So, you know, had to shift gears from interrogating a cybercrime hacker to, uh, you know, the worst terrorist event ever in the U.S. That 
that was unnerving, to say the least, to be the first person on the ground when that plane was coming in, not really knowing if there was a bomb on that thing or if there were terrorists on the plane. Um, but what I think the takeaway for me, and you know, I learned this over and over and over again in the FBI when you had to respond to crisis events, was there's this natural sort of reaction most people have is that it really requires an act first, think second mentality, but it's actually the opposite. The, the more intense, the more complex, the bigger the crisis, if you're able to just slow down, think first, and really, you know, take a pause and breathe and think about all the, the options, all the actions you take after that will go a lot faster. There's a there's an old leadership saying, I can't remember who coined it. I think it was Ken Blanchard, who was a prolific uh, book author on the topic of leadership, who said something like, sometimes you have to slow down before you can go faster. So that I think that motto applies to really any crisis event. You're right. It, it's a natural tendency to just have the adrenaline kick in and, and you sit down and you start working on things versus sitting back and going, all right, what, what's actually going on here? Let's take stock of what's going on. We can prioritize it and go from there. So that's that's something that I'll jot down to to continue to, to reference uh, throughout my time as well, just because you never know. I mean, even if it's a smaller type of attack, right? Very difficult to compare to something like a 9-11 response, but even a smaller scale cyber attack or, or something going on in your life, it, I feel like it's a principle that can directly apply to, to many aspects of life. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Now, I know that you were one of the first to build a cyber offense unit for the FBI, which in and of itself sounds like a very overwhelming and, and challenging task, especially because it was one of the first cyber offensive units for the FBI. So can you share some of the challenges that maybe you faced during that process and some of the learnings of, of how you ended up building that team? Of course. At that time, you know, the FBI has, and still today, a unit that does network surveillance, of course, always under appropriate, appropriate legal authorities and court orders and search warrants. Uh, whatever the, the appropriate vehicle is. But at the time, those operations were starting to see more and more network traffic that was encrypted, uh, which made things very difficult if you're trying to surveil the bad guys. So we decided that we needed to get the information before it went out on the wire, so to speak. And that was really the the fundamental driving reason for the offensive operations that we put together. But in the beginning, the biggest challenge really was the, the legal side of it, you know, working with the Department of Justice, um, attorneys on the criminal side, attorneys on the national security side, and developing the language um, that would be presented to you know, criminal courts and you know, the, the federal surveillance courts for, for national security matters so that we could actually get the authorities to conduct the operations. So the, the legal side of it was was very complex in the beginning. I, I'd say that took probably a year of my life just working with attorneys at DOJ, getting all that established. But then the technical side was equally complex, um, just developing the tools and the techniques, the procedures, um, and assessing risk, right? So, you know, we didn't want to, we didn't want to blow up investigations. We wanted to make sure that when we did this, we did it well. And uh, the risk was low to the case agent, but we had to maintain, you know, all kinds of different exploits, inventories of vulnerabilities, 
uh, abilities to weaponize the exploits if, if you're able to make those work. Um, and then maintaining access for as long as the corridor allowed without getting uh, detected by the bad guys. So I think across the board, everything we were doing was was quite complex, especially in the beginning. Lots of moving parts, lots of complexity, and pretty high stakes too, it sounds like. So that's incredible. I Honestly, I could probably spend an hour asking you questions about that time and unpacking a little bit more of that. But as I promised the audience, I also want to spend a little bit of time talking about what you've seen shift in cybercrime and cyber threats since the start of your career, since the 1980s, since you've been on the boots on the ground since about 1980, spanning across both government and the private sector. So to, to get started unpacking that a little bit more, what what can you remember being some of the earliest cyber threats that you encountered when you first got started? Yeah, when cybercrime started in the 90s, it was really focused on, I mean, just think about what companies were doing on the internet at that time. Not much, right? Companies may have had websites. It was more of a sales and marketing effort. Um, so it was really about web defacements, I think was the terminology we used at the time. And my, my first big case, intrusion case that I led, there were over 50 victims. They were primarily just gaining access to people's websites, changing the homepage, um, more for like soci social injustice type reasons or political statements. But, you know, the, later that would change. Um, we call that a watering hole attack today. So if I can gain access to, you know, a known website's homepage and insert malicious code that monitors for every connection coming to the homepage, looking for vulnerable browsers or vulnerable software on the computers that are connecting to the homepage, then that code can actually gain access to, you know, thousands and thousands of computers a day that are connecting to the, the homepage of that website. So that was like just one example of how something transitioned over a 15 to 20 year period. But really around, I'd say 2007-ish, 2008, we began to see cyber criminal activity transition to targeting organizations that, uh, that stored or processed consumer data. So think, you know, PII, personal information, uh, credit card information healthcare information. So there was a there was a massive uptick in what's called today data breaches. Um, and that went on for years. It still goes on today. And then around 2010 to 2012, um, we began to see more nation state threats. I think we were just starting to detect them. They had likely been targeting the private sector for many years, but the detection phase started to come around 2010. And that was really focused on espionage, right? How can we gain access to an American competitor, find their trade secrets or, you know, critical business information or information about mergers and acquisitions um, and, and steal that information for the benefit of a competitor in a foreign government's homeland. So a big uptick there. That's still going on today. Then if you move forward to, say, 2014-ish, um, these are just rough numbers. We saw the uh, the rise of cyber extortion. Now, cyber extortion was always there. I had my first cyber extortion case, I think, in 1999. 
looked a little bit different than the way it, it goes down today. But the uh, extortionists today leverage a tool called ransomware. Um, ransomware is very destructive. Um, it basically cripples computer systems at the target organization. Uh, the extortionist then takes the information and encrypts it um, and then demands a uh, sort of a, a ransom payment. And they're always looking for the payment in in some sort of cryptocurrency. So a lot of organizations aren't prepared for that, right? How do you how do you negotiate with these people? How do you try to get the ransom demand down? How do you get the cryptocurrency and get that over to the bad guy so you can get the data back all with the hope that they give you a decryption key that works and, and allows you to get access to your data and restore your systems and get back up and running. Um, it's, it's a very difficult crisis situation for business leaders today. And it's impacting companies in every industry, every sector, um, in every continent on earth. And I really have empathy for, you know, these CEOs of these companies and other business leaders because it's tough, right? You just can't take the default government position that, you know, we're not going to negotiate with bad guys, right? These, these people have companies they're running, um, they've got clients, they've got employees, they've got share value. And at the end of the day, you know, it seems that the decision point comes down to, do we have reliable backups and do we have high confidence we can restore those backups quickly? And if the answer is no, they have to go down the payment route, which is unfortunate. So over that time, right around the 1990s, just to kind of summarize, most of the threats back then were were fairly unsophisticated, mostly defacements, probably some fragmented groups here and there or individuals doing that for political or, or other other reasons. Then that started shifting a little bit more. We saw more nation state cyber espionage started happening. And then after that, we started to see more groups trying to make money from their attacks in some way or, or another. And then those became quite a bit more advanced and complex. You now have a cyber extortion from threat actors who are actual organizations, right? They have HR departments, they have deep resources, they might even use contractors to to get a cut of, of whatever proceeds they get from, from extortion. So it sounds like it just keeps getting more and more sophisticated and the stakes are getting higher and higher because as you pointed out, it could be anywhere from a Fortune 500 company or a smaller business to a hospital to even critical infrastructure like an oil pipeline that cripples an entire country or, or a big part of the country anyway. So as we think about that evolution to date, how do you see it evolve from today onwards, especially now with the rise of AI? I mean, do you think that's going to have a large impact on cybercrime? We're, we're already seeing the effects of AI being used by, uh, by cyber criminals, right? It just allows them to scale at a, at a rate that we've never seen before. It's increasing the velocity of the attacks. If you look at the trend line over the last 20 years or so, Cybercrime has steadily gone up to the right. There, there was that period of time around 2010, 2012, where the trend line went vertical. That's not going to change. It's, it's going to stay vertical, but the velocity is just going to continue to increase. And I think AI is going to be a, a big contributor to that. Up to date, right, we've had this dance back and forth between offense and defense, where offense is innovating and defense is having to, to keep up. It, it sounds like at this point in time, Offense may be getting a little bit of an edge or, or a big edge, but do you think AI is also going to be 
a massive help on the defensive side to where we're able to, to keep that dance going? Or do you really think AI is going to, to lean heavier on one side versus the other? Well, it's it's already being incorporated on the defensive side. And I'm sure there's companies that could cite their use of AI um, and the impact it's having. I, I think the big, just from a wholesale perspective across the board, the big challenge on the defensive side is the trust factor. Like who's who's developing the AI you know, what code really exists behind the scenes at the source level and just having complete trust that AI can make decisions like human beings that don't negatively impact business operations. I think we're a few years away from, you know, getting over that, that trust hurdle. So it's, it's still early stages, right? I think it's, it's a little bit too early to, to know exactly how it's, it's going to unfold, but it is concerning to hear that we're already seeing pretty massive developments on the offensive side and, and some impacts from that. So I'll be curious to see how that continues to, to unfold for sure. So you mentioned nation state cyber espionage a couple of times, and, and we briefly touched on that. Before this article, I wanted to try and get a sense of the scale of the issue, because as you said, it's been growing in recent years. And... I think estimates are a little bit all over the place, but some of the estimates that I found from research place the cost to U.S. firms only in the tens of billions of dollars annually. So what do we see happening in the cyber espionage space, given the implications that it has for, frankly, both national security, but also international relations, given that many nation states are are doing this against each other? That's a, that's a very good question. Question and difficult to answer. Um, I think the number you cited, if you think about that number, right, that's coming from a public source that only has access to the incidents that they're aware of. I think all that public reporting on the cost of cybercrime is only a fraction of what it really is, which is really scary. The, the nation state problem is very difficult. I think if you're a company that views any particular nation as a threat to your trade secrets or business information, you've got to figure it out, right? You've got to look at your company, your organization, your IT infrastructure as like your own little battlefield. And you have to protect that to solely rely on the government to protect you from espionage is, is not going to work. And obviously the numbers you cited have proven that out over the years, but really it's about awareness at this at the senior most levels of these of these companies do they view this as a threat or not and for the ones that do you see them setting aside a proper budget and bringing in the right leaders and the right team to help uh, reduce the risk of espionage so if someone's listening right now and they're hearing your stories they're hearing your background and they envision that as as their dream career what would be some of the advice that you would give them so that they can follow along in your footsteps well, it's a great, I mean, if you want to get into the cybersecurity field today, it's just an amazing time. If you think about, I mean, there's 3 million unfulfilled cybersecurity jobs in public sector and private sector globally. So huge demand. Schools have really developed um, amazing programs over the last 10 years. There's a lot of undergraduate bachelor's degrees. There's many schools that offer master's degrees in cybersecurity. Um, the, the advice I would give anyone pursuing one of those degrees is to pick schools that will not only give you the education, but allow you to develop skills that make you very, very marketable and can hit the ground running at the companies that hire you, because that's what we're looking for, right? It's great to have the academics, but the students that can separate themselves from 
academics to hands-on will uh, will rise to the top quickly after they graduate. Well, and given the visibility that you've had into both the government and so many private industries, what would you say are some of those skills, if you can think of a, a few to share here, that you feel our future cybersecurity leaders really need to, to focus on developing? Yeah, there, there's a few skills. Um, if you think about coding, like there's always opportunities on the defensive side, on the response side for people that can develop scripts and programs um, and update existing scripts and programs that can be applied to things like data analysis, right? A big part of threat hunting, big part of incident response and digital forensics is analyzing the data that you have access to, to look for suspicious or malicious behavior. Um, Then there's, you know, security operations and analyst roles. So if, if you have familiarity with any of the technologies and products that are out there that would allow a company to monitor their assets and be able to decipher some of the alerts and reduce false positives certainly would be an amazing skill to have and a great career to have. I mentioned digital forensics. That's a discipline in of itself, whether you're looking at computer hard drives or live memory from computers or data from security technologies, firewalls, web server logs, things like that. There's there's many, many careers. And then there's a softer side of cybersecurity around uh, governance, risk, and compliance. So helping companies continually assess their risk, being able to assess compliance against any you know given cybersecurity standard or regulation or legislation that is required for that company's industry. So there's a lot of different paths out there today from technical to strategic. I think the future is bright, right? If you want a career in this space, there's not a better time than, than now. All right. So if you're listening, there's your your cybersecurity learning roadmap for the next few months to, to focus on. So that's perfect. Thank you, Shane. To wrap up the episode, I'd like to move on to a quick fire round, which is just quick and short questions and answers. And they, they help wrap up the episode on a little bit of a lighter note here. But what, what are some of your favorite hobbies outside of work? What do you usually do outside of work? Uh, the, the number one thing I do is play tennis. So I get a little, I get a little itchy if I, uh, I can't get my tennis in you know, one or two times a week. That's probably the number one hobby I have. Secondarily would be golf. I don't get to do that very often anymore. It's just, it's too time consuming. But look forward to coming back to that sport at some point in the future. I got some tennis rackets a year and a half ago, and to this day, I still haven't used them. I, I don't know why I keep coming up with excuses, so maybe this weekend I can go out and, and play some tennis. That's a good reminder of that. Uh, what next question is, what, what's one of your favorite books or movies or podcasts? And it, it doesn't even have to be IT related. Yeah, I just, I, I, I read books. I remember going through my master's degree, I read over 100 books in like two years, and I've just tried to continue that trend. And I tend to like oscillate between nonfiction and fiction. I'm just finishing a book. It's uh, Andre Agassi's autobiography called Open. It's uh, I'm a sports guy. I played sports in high school and in college. I haven't read a sports book in probably two decades, but picked this one up and it's a true page turner. I mean, think I got to the last chapter on back-to-back two-hour flights. I mean, I just whipped through it, but pretty compelling read. 
Awesome. Thanks for the recommendation. And the last question is, in your opinion, what is one area that you feel we're missing the mark in terms of organizations or just society in general when it comes to cybersecurity? Well, I think the big mark that's been missed historically is that we've been treating treating that as a technology problem and not a business problem. Cybercrime just presents another form of risk to any organization. And if you start there at that level, um, that will drive your strategy, that will drive the type of people you hire, it will drive the kind of technology you need. So starting from a strategic level and going down makes a heck of a lot more sense today as opposed to 15 years ago where it was the opposite. It was a technology first approach. And then, you know, years later, trying to figure out what the right strategy was. Well, and a lot of us just like to, to focus on the tech because it's just a lot more fun. It's more fun. <laughs> so, exactly. So I can relate to that. That's a good tip. If people want to follow up with you, how can they connect and reach out? Yeah, we're easy to find. Uh, our website is Kivu, K-I-V-U Consulting, KivuConsulting.com. There's various ways to track me down or anyone else in our firm. We've got a hotline you can call. We've got a you know, a rapid response email address. We've got profiles of our key leaders there. So kivuconsulting.com. Thanks for asking. Are you also hiring at the moment? Is there a place people can go if they're interested in a job position or? We have many openings across many disciplines and the uh, careers page can be found at that website. Perfect. Shane, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your experience. Like I said, we could go on for hours. This was really insightful and and entertaining as well. Thanks for taking us back down memory lane here. And thanks everybody for tuning in to this episode. Please do reach out to Shane and Kivu at their website or on social media and give them a big thank you for sharing with us on the podcast and to Shane for, for sharing his time as well. Thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next time.